Today, for first and second hour, we're going to stay in the same study, which is not usually how we do it. Our normal practice is to stay... Um, there we go. Is to work one study first hour, and then we're in the riches of grace second hour. But we're going to have communion second hour, and we'd like to um, kind of have a special today on what we're talking about in this little study we're doing first hour that I'm calling God and Government. try this again. God and government. There we go. All right. And what's our theme verse in this study? For American Christians, that's who I'm talking to. If you're visiting from foreign, this is, this is an application of God's word, a Christian worldview on the question of God and human government. And it applies across all cultures. But we're living in an American context in 2022. So it's important to know that as we look to application. We're about to exercise our franchise this next Tuesday, and we're going to do it as ministers of government, as functionaries with delegated responsibilities in human government. This is a government of, by, for the people, and we have a responsibility and a stewardship in this regard as citizens of the United States. And it's directly connected to your Creator. So what's our theme verse for God and government? Do y'all remember? Yeah, 1 Peter 1.13. Prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation. That's the second advent to planet earth to set up the kingdom. The revelation of Jesus Christ. That's a governmental statement that Peter makes in the context historically of the Roman Empire. And Christian persecution at the hands of the Roman Empire. Peter is saying that our hope is in the revelation of Jesus Christ. When I say it's a government statement, the coming of Jesus is the establishment of the promised and future kingdom, just as the Bible described. I recently heard a a commentator I I like to listen to explain what he thought the kingdom of heaven was about. For people like uh, this one sort of liberal Christian And I say liberal in the classic sense of he doesn't believe that the word of God is inspired word for word, but he does believe in Christ and that the core of Christianity is the experience of Jesus or something. Is that it's all about Jesus, so we can let go of the word and embrace all kinds of things contrary to God's word, but as long as we have Jesus. That's that's Christian liberalism. It's, It's taking over what should be conservative, but it's now evangelicalism. It's taking over. And uh, this one commentator said that uh, the kingdom of heaven is described by Jesus when he said, it's not of this world. My kingdom is not of this world. And then we're off to the races, spiritualizing what the Old Testament expects everywhere as a physical, literal, historic kingdom on planet earth of a king ruling over all the nations, like Psalm 2 says, subduing the nations with a rod of iron. All the nations streaming into Jerusalem to hear the teaching of Yahweh. Jesus in the flesh, God in the flesh. 
proclaiming the truth of God, his instruction. This is all through the Old Testament prophets. And what's been done since Origen and Augustine, who went with him on prophecy, is to take the future coming literal, actual, historic, political kingdom of Christ on earth over all the nations with the body of Christ, the church, ruling with Christ in this administration that is the coming kingdom. They've taken this literal kingdom and they've spiritualized it into the rule of God in our hearts because after all, it's not of this world. Well, if Jesus meant by those words that the kingdom is not what was promised and expected throughout the Old Testament, but rather it is a spiritualized, philosophical, metaphysical sort of thing. If that's what he meant, then okay. I'll go with Augustine and all the craziness that has arisen from the assumption that, the, for example, the Church of Rome is the kingdom. We're gonna, we, have to have, we have an embassy in every, every city. And, uh, and the more we gain ascendancy over the city, the more... The, 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 the civil governments bow to the, to the clergy, and we rule, and that's the, that's the king. It's not, but that's what Augustine's ideas eventuated in. What a mess. What a wretched mess with the destruction of so many children in our lifetime under that brand. What a horrible thing to say, this is Jesus ruling. Jesus says a millstone for their necks. It'd be better to be thrown into, the, into the, the deep with a millstone around your neck than to harm these little ones. For one example. Now, the kingdom is not of this world is a reference to the authority structures that govern the nations in blindness. Satan has deceived the nations, and he is the ruler of this present world system, cosmos, And that's what Jesus is talking about. I'm not going to govern within this structure that Pontius Pilate is part of. When he comes to set up his kingdom, it's described in Daniel 2. It's the rock that's cut without hands that smashes the great statue of all the kingdoms, including Rome and revived Rome, and grinds them up to powder. And then the wind blows those kingdoms away. And then this kingdom becomes a mountain. And that mountain, that rock that becomes a mountain, fills the entire earth. See, his kingdom is not of this world. It's not of this present arrangement. And when Satan said, bow down to me, and I will give you the kingdoms of the earth, whatever has been given to me, it's been given to me, and I can give to whoever I want. When Satan said that, he's talking about government. He's talking about a world system of government. Jesus says no. Why? Because his kingdom is not of this world. In that case, when, what he said was, it's your, your mistake and no one is to be worshipped God alone. Get away from me. But this temptation, the temptations of our Savior, show you what he means when he says, my kingdom is not of this world. He didn't challenge Satan's claim to governance of this present darkness. And that's what we're in. And no political process is going to change that. No participation you and I engage in, and we need to engage and, and exercise our franchise and do what, is, what we're responsible for. But it's not going to change the fact that the kingdom of our Lord Jesus is not of this world. And it is coming. It is coming. And we need to fix our hope completely on it. By way of review, the last couple of times we've given a, a couple of principles that I think very, help us clearly understand a biblical worldview of human government. And today I want to talk about where it comes from. 
little more. The first thing we said was the beginning of human government is stated in Genesis 9-6. If you take the Bible as God's account of what he has delegated, what he's authorized, what he's made us responsible for, then you have to go to Genesis 9-6 for the origin of man's rule over man. And the idea of anarchy doesn't work with Genesis 9-6. There's going to be government. I believe John Adams said, man, we must be governed. Man, because of his sinfulness, must be governed. Bold move, yes. Yes. Anybody want to turn on the other air dryer, you're welcome to it. We'll dry out the air. All right. Beginning of human government. We also had, in our first study on this, in 1 Samuel 8, God's critique of human government. He establishes it after the fall, Genesis 9, and then he critiques it what it's going to be like under kings. You could say, well, that's specifically monarchical government. Well, that's specifically Gentile monarchical government. It's the norm in all of human history. And what you're in right now in the United States is a bubble. It's something that's never been experienced in world history, a maximum expression of human freedom because we grounded our whole system in the idea of a creator to whom we're all responsible. That's where this experiment came from. It didn't come from slavery. It didn't come from colonialism. It didn't come from all the isms that people say, except for theism. A creator who has given us inalienable rights. Now, the critique of human government is this is what people do. They lord it over each other. And even in our system, the wealthy become the oppressor. How do we see that today? The right you have to speak your mind, to say, this is what I understand, this is what I think is happening. Even if you say it in a qualified way, I think this is happening. One of the things that was forbidden to be said by the, by the oligarchs, the people that rule the thought life of this, of this culture, was that this latest uh, virus was probably generated by humans in some way in a laboratory. And this was forbidden. And if you said it, you were, by the oligarchs, by the people in power, you were told you can't speak anymore and the platforms that we have. This is what I mean by humans are going to lord it over other humans because that freedom to say this is what I think is happening, well, that's not, that can't be permitted. That's, that's misinformation. That's disinformation. Until it isn't. Until they say, well, it kind of was probably man-made. Everyone wants to talk about man-made climate change. How about man-made stupidity? <laughs> this was done. People did this thing. And I, we can all speculate and listen to various sources and, and insights about why this was done. But I think this is evident in 1 Samuel 8. Humans in power are going to lord it over their humans. They're going to restrict the freedom, the volition that people would otherwise exercise. And last time we said the first principle of government is that God is sovereign. God is the sovereign. We are not. And we have to get that fully ingrained. I personally have to go back to this thought again and again. When I don't get my way and I insist that my way is better than the way that is going, I, like you, need to say, I'm not sovereign. I'm not God. God is God. But it should go this way. It should, unless there are other things that I don't know about that God is doing. And it's so vital. I mean, I think this is such a basic thought. It's just basic metaphysics, basic Christian metaphysics, basic sense of nature of reality. But 
the more profound and basic things are, often the more powerful they are. I'm not saying that everybody's a nail, but in the carpenter's tool chest, this is like the hammer or the circular saw. You can build a house with those two things. There are other tools we might have, but this is very fundamental, that God is sovereign. And sovereignty, we said, means authority. Sovereignty means authority at least. Now, theologians will, will talk about what else it could mean besides authority, like the determination of the outcomes rather than the right to make the decisions. But I'm going to hang on to just the thought for now of authority because I'm not sure how God secures outcomes. He doesn't tell us that. But I do know that he's told me what he wants, and I know he has the right to say it. And that's the point at which I'm responding to him in real time. What he's determined that would actually take place in whatever frame of determinism exists or doesn't exist is outside of my responsibilities. And if you don't really understand what I'm saying, I'm saying that when God tells you what he wants, you can't rest on, well, God in his sovereignty is going to make it happen if he really wants it. No, he puts it to you and me. This is what I want. And now you're responsible, yes or no. You're responsible to God. And that's the frame from Genesis chapter 3, Genesis 2, 17, through all of human history. God holds man responsible for his decisions. And authority means the right to make decisions. If sovereignty definitely means authority, at least. Authority definitely means the right to make decisions. It doesn't mean a superiority of a person over another person in their quality, in their value, in their intelligence. And it doesn't mean if a husband, for example, has authority in the marriage that a wife doesn't have, according to the scriptures. Listen carefully, please. The right to make decisions does not mean uh, superiority of value. And the truth is that God gave a, a, a woman to man as his helpmeet. And to make decisions, you need help. We need help. And most of you have sorted this out. Most of you are not living by merely that capitulation of the 11th commandment, happy wife, happy life. Most of you are not trying to just punt your responsibilities, gentlemen. But you are aware there's a reason God gave you a wife, and it's not to have just a, a chief with one Indian, if I could use that antiquated expression. And I, I can. Okay. We talked about the statics and the dynamics of authority structures. And I want to re review that real quick. If authority is the right to decide, it, it inescapably establishes an over-under stasis. Authority as the right to decide means that those who are under the authority don't have the right to decide in that frame, whatever the decision is. And you can, you can trace that through at your job. There's somebody over you saying, eh, no, we need to do it this way. However they say it. I love leadership insights because generally what, what leaders are doing in their leadership theories, like I listen to, uh, at times, I listen to Jocko Willink, who's a, a leadership guy. He's a Navy SEAL um, uh, officer, I believe he's retired, and he's all into Brazilian jiu-jitsu and, and other things. And, um, and he's, he's, he's the guy that says, make, you know, from a, from a SEAL team perspective, make your bed. Like Jordan Peterson does it from, a, from like a, 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 Dar, um, a um, Freudian perspective, make your bed. But, but um, it's good. The kids need to be making their bed. So 
Jocko writes these books of encouragement. He's got kids' books about kids that stand up to bullies and do, do their job and grow up a little bit and take on responsibility because if you want freedom, you need responsibility. He's a helpful guy. Like, like, I don't know if he's a believer. I don't know what his religion is, but I, I think he's helpful. But in all the leadership stuff, they'll, they'll say things like, if you have a, a, a subordinate in your, in your organization that isn't working toward the mission, you know, there are a couple of different ways. You can go say, um, maybe we ought to think about this. Or you can say, have you considered this? Or you can just say, you need to do X, Y, and Z and be directive. And, and all of this is, in part, negotiating around people's arrogance. It's, it's giving them agency or letting them have the agency that they should have so that they don't feel like they're not valued or that they're not making decisions for their own you know, wheelhouse that they've been given. But, but it's almost like all leadership direction is don't ever tell somebody X, Y, and Z. Now, some of us are good with either way, but we'd like the clarity. What do you actually want? And sometimes it's good as a subordinate to tell the boss, thank you for giving me agency or recognizing agency. Please just tell me what is X, Y, and Z. We'll do that. Give me the dates. Give me the suspense. Let me, let me get a mission and get going. But see, a lot of this, everybody's in a different place. Everyone's got a different set of sensitivities. So managing people, leading them is a, is a process of dealing with their humanity as God's image bearers and their fallenness as sinners. And you have to deal with that dynamic, and it's hard. And that's why sometimes we say, ah, they can't be here anymore. They have to be fired because they don't work, because there's the balance between their bearing God's image and their sinfulness doesn't work in how this company operates. That's a theological perspective, I think, biblical perspective of, um, of business. But what I'm saying is in leadership, there's a statics and a dynamics of it. The stasis is that the person in authority has the right to decide for those under. That's just the fact. How you execute that, how you operate that would be the dynamics. And I can contend... Um, that if you're under the authority, you don't have that right. It's, there's the differential. And so it looks like this. You have the over, the under, and the frame in which that authority is exercised. Foreman, worker, assembly line, these are the, the jobs. That doesn't mean that the foreman has the right to tell you how to talk to your wife. Right? Because that's not the arrangement in that factory business. That, that's the boundaries of the, of the issue. That's the statics. That's the truth of it. Now, the dynamics are how you execute. And I believe that the biblical model is this, that the leader has an objective. He says, this is where we need to be going. And instead of saying from his ivory tower, y'all go, he comes down and shows us and says, I provided you an example. Now, you do likewise. The leader says, love one another. Imitate God as beloved children. So, well, let's just cast about and wonder what that should look like. He doesn't leave us alone. He sends his son, God in the flesh, and God in the flesh shows us what loving one another looks like. And now we're responsible to model that as believers. Having been saved by his grace, by faith alone in Christ, now we know that we have responsibilities he's given us, and he modeled them for us. So the leader moves in the direction Okay, if you will, following the leader, and then the follower follows that. And that's biblical, I believe, leadership dynamics or authority dynamics. And Jesus, I'm getting this out of John 13. 
Jesus dons the towel, as we say, and he washes his disciples' feet in the role play of a slave, a household servant. Being the greatest among them, he takes the position of the least in his, in his expression. But that doesn't change the authority structure. This is still there. He is still the Lord, and they are still his disciples. But he shows them, he leads them in the direction they need to go of humbling themselves, concerning themselves for the other, not for, the, for oneself or one's right pride of place. Let your dignity be demonstrated in your following the model of selfless concern for the other, or Christian love. And that's, this is the way God does it in terms of, and he says in the story in John 13, which is history, he says, you're not greater than me. I'm still the boss. And I provided you an example that you would do for one another. This is biblical expression or dynamics, how you carry out this authority structure. It's really important to see this. It's, it's really overplayed. We talk about too much servant leadership. Everybody, everyone's a servant leader. What does that mean? This is what it means. Not a joke. Not a joke. <laughs> okay, that was, that's a Biden quote. Not a joke. So today I want to talk about the great delegation. That's all in review. What is the great delegation? We go from God's sovereignty to your individual responsibility every day of your life and Tuesday too. From God's sovereignty demands responsibility. Can you walk someone through how this works? Because it's the story of Genesis chapters 1 through 3 and then the rest of the Bible. From God's sovereignty to your responsibility. These two things, by the way, are the great riddle that everyone struggles with when they talk about the Calvin-Arminian or Augustine-Pelagius debate of determinism. How much is, are we really responsible for and how much at the end of it can we just say God did all the stuff and we were just along for the ride? And as far as our experience is concerned, the oracles, I'm sorry, the, the, the decrees of God, his eternal determination of that which takes place is far beyond our capacity to even understand. God tells us what he wants. When he tells Israel what he wants, it's ten words. The ten devarim, the ten words, the ten commandments. Love God and love man for God's sake. Four, how they would treat God. Six of the commandments, how they would treat man for God's sake, like not murdering him, like not coveting, like not adulterating. And these um, are plenty of evidence that God has expectations for which he holds us responsible. And everybody fails. And that's why Christ came and died for our sins. God is the sovereign, I want to argue, for at least two reasons. First, it is his essence. And the second is he made everything. Essence and action. His essence is that God is omnipotent. And omnipotence, the person with all the power, gets to decide what we're playing, what the game is. That's how power works. He's got all the power, and that alone makes him sovereign. This is, how, uh, this is what chess does for you when you play chess. When you play chess and you're playing it correctly, not, you know, sympathetically or empathetically, <laughs> When we play chess, we're, um, we're doing what we can. And it's all power arrangement. Because the goal is to win. Now, if you're a dad playing with your little kids, the goal is to teach them and they learn and sympathetic chess. But 
why don't you move here? Because if I do, the knight will get me. And then, and then that sets up a check with the bishop. And two moves later, it's a checkmate. I don't do it because of the power in the arrangement. It's all power. And, and that's how it chess is the arrangement of power with all the different pieces on the board. Power is the basis in reality to establish God's sovereignty. Were he sovereign or had the right to make the decisions but had no power to carry them out, right? There would not be sovereignty. There would just be, there would be somebody that says stuff if it doesn't happen. God actually speaks and things happen. Let there be light. There is light. Reality bends to God's will and his direction, and that's omnipotence. And, that, and think about that. When you deal with the Habakkuk question of how long, O oh Lord, how long are you going to let this go on? They're mutilating children and calling it morality and saying that to mutilate children is immoral is itself an immoral statement. How long, right? God, aren't you omnipotent? Aren't you my holy one? Can't you just nuke or laser the people that are responsible for the child mutilation that we're about to see on a grand scale in this country, for example? Just for one example. Nope. Not going to do it. That's not how I'm doing it. But in Habakkuk, we have the answer. I'm doing a work in your days. You wouldn't believe it if you're told. I'm bringing the Chaldeans. They're going to destroy the whole country. Right? That's, that's God's answer to Habakkuk's question about, can't you do something about this? Oh, I'm, I'm doing something. And that's the answer we have. The kingdom is coming. And the way this kingdom is going to be established is through overwhelming military force. And there are some things, some dark times that are going to happen before that. But God is omnipotent and he made everything. And these things go hand in hand. One is his essence, omnipotence, his attribute. The other is his action, what he did in making. What God is, what he's done. Do you see how that fits together? We don't have a God who's pretty good at stuff and, you know, he got some stuff right. Beluga whales are kind of cool. Now, he is... He is infinitely powerful. And so that's what he is. And what he's done is creation. And it's evidence in Romans 1 that he's there. And here's what I'm calling creation logic. From the profound fact that God created everything, if you believe in a creator. Now, I believe in six little days of creation. I believe in actual what Genesis says as history. And I think the earth looks flooded. I don't think it looks old. I think it looks flooded. And I think all the geological stuff that Lyell proposed and all those that followed him with their, their uh, naturalistic con- conclusions, I think all of these things can be explained generally by the biblical account of, of, history, of world history. And I, I believe that from a scientific perspective, and I love science, and I think it's important to look at Bacon's method and those that have derived from it and, and look at the earth. And if you do that with the Bible... You end up with um, calculus. That's how Newton approached life, history. You end up with, um, with the ability to calculate the change of mass with respect to time, which didn't have an application when Newton saw this, but eventually would be how we would calculate rocket travel as the rocket burns fuel and loses mass over time, but also changes position. And it changes the position with respect to position or the, 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 the speed at which position changes. And all this 
these natural phenomena that we observe, they're all described mathematically by Newton, who believed in a creator and is looking for nature to have the order that it has. What I'm saying is that um, just because I believe in the Bible doesn't mean I'm unscientific. It means that I don't believe in scientism. I don't say the authority is uh, the community, that they've all agreed together to assume Darwin. I don't think that's a good assumption. I think Darwin didn't know very much about cellular biology because he couldn't yet. We've learned a lot. Mutation is bad. It's not good. Cellular mutation is a bad thing, and it causes illness and uh, destroys the cell. But anyway, if you start with God as the creator, and theistic evolutionists believe God is the creator, and they don't, we don't read Genesis the same way, but we start with the same proposition, that God is the creator. If you take the profound fact that God created everything, then first of all, you have in creation the original basis for the ownership of property. Can you think about it with me? That's a lot of words. Maybe I'm wordy and it's obscuring what I'm saying. How do you know you own something? If you make it, you own it. We live in this. We expect this. We, we, we do. Intellectual property rights is a big deal in our culture. But it's been a big deal since there have been intellectual property. Or any property. I made that. You didn't build that. Now, if you make something, you own the thing that you've made. Why? Because you made it. Well, at least they can't take away from me the thing I made. What? What? They just took it. And this is, this is copyrights, intellectual property. The biggest sin you can commit rightfully in academics is plagiarism, to steal the thoughts of others and say that they're your own thoughts. And the way we know that you're plagiarizing, especially is if you quote someone else and, and say that you said that thing that there is a direct quote of them. One of the great New Testament scholars of my, uh, my generation, looking at the, ne- the one before, you know, the older guys that are writing the commentaries, the theological professors, came out of Australia in, in, uh, when I was going through seminary, and everybody was reading his Ephesians commentary. And about five years ago, it was found out that this fellow was writing word for word what one of his New Testament professors had said in his commentary. Word for word. No wonder it was good. It sounds like, I think it was F.F. Bruce. Your Ephesians work sounds a lot like F.F. Bruce's work. And he's an articulate writer. And I would go with Honer, by the way, if you're wondering about an Ephesians commentary. But I'll try not to ever quote him and say that I said it, what he said. But the point is that... Um, that the, 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 by this time, middle-aged or aging scholar who quoted his professor at length in long sections, huge chunks of his commentary they've been selling for 30 years were quotes of someone that was 30 years before him. Um, he said, well, I, I had him in class. I'm really not sure how much of what he said, you know, came into my, like I took good notes. And he wouldn't own that he had plagiarized. But the thing is, we can read. And if you read the two, you're like, he totally ripped off F.F. Bruce. And so he got dis- disavowed. He lost his career. He lost his credentials. And it's sad. 
you read a, a Lewis Berry Schaefer systematic theology, my favorite systematic theology work is by Schaefer. C-H-A-F-E-R, eight volumes originally in one, it's really six volumes. One of those volumes is an index, another is a summary book, and so it's really six volumes of, of reasoning. More than half of that work is long extended quotes with extensive footnotes. And he'll always introduce, just like Dr. So-and-so says. And he's got this whole library of theologians he quotes all through it. And most of it is not uh, famous historic theologians like Calvin or, or whoever. He's quoting people in his day that are considered prominent or whatever. A lot of guys I've never heard of. I've heard of Chafer, never heard of this guy he keeps quoting. And so th- this, is, this is something that happens a lot. And what Chafer's doing and attributing it, what I try to do, if somebody gave me a thought, I try to say, well, I got this from so-and-so, is you're, you're recognizing that if somebody makes it, they own it. I believe that God makes human beings. I think Jeremiah says so. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I believe that every one of you, every one of us, is a direct work of God. And I'm what you call a creationist when it comes to the immaterial part of man. I don't think that the immaterial is mediated through biological process. I think God makes you immaterially. But as far as mankind can discern, your parents made you. You know what I mean? The application of this principle that if you made it, you own it, goes directly to parental responsibility. And I don't mean that human beings in this frame of, in this worldview that I have of the biblical worldview, doesn't mean that human beings are physical chattel property, like material property. Like if you had made um, a needle point, you own that. Or if you'd made a bench or a chair or a house that you own that. That's true. In the case of humans, it's the only thing that we make that's not a thing. It's the image of God, someone that bears God's image, and so a different category. And so the ownership is in terms of the responsibility or stewardship for what is necessary to that image bearer of God. But it still belongs to those two people, not to the state, not to the village, not to, not to the United Nations, Hillary Clinton, not to all the things that are standing in proxy for man responding to God. See, if you made it, you own it is a huge thing in a biblical worldview. Marx suggested that the problem with man, our original sin, is our ownership of property. Because he's directly opposed to a biblical worldview that the basis for all relationship between creator and creature is creation implies ownership. And ownership carries responsibilities. The owner has responsibilities with the creation. The created has responsibilities to the owner because, of the, because it exists and it's inherent. It's an implied basic thing. If you make it, you own it. The second principle of creation logic, as I'm calling it, is the fundamental property right itself. If you own something, then that means that you have the right to make decisions about its use, its disposition, its distribution, its function, its present, and its future. You can't do anything about its past. But if you own something, then you should manage the narrative of its past. You should, as the one that's always been there from creation, from making it, you should have a clear testimony to what happened, where it came from. So if you make it, you own it, is the 
fundamental property right, and so God owns everything. I'm saying that there's no circle you can draw, there's nothing you can get outside in the created universe that we live in, outside of God's right to make the decision. So the third thing in creation logic, God is creator-owner. By virtue of the rights of creator, God has authority over all creation, including mankind. Well, you said God is sovereign. Well, I'm trying to show you that there's a connection. There's an analogy between you and God. You're God's image bearer. You make things like people. You have property rights. You have things that you made that you own. You have the productivity of your life. One thing that, you know, I've heard a lot is that I'm going to go make some money. Make money? Well, that's the phrase we use. Your time, energy, expertise, you set up a, a, a situation where there, what you could produce was traded for medium of exchange, currency, money. Make money. You either have an employer or you are bartering goods. You're trading goods that you've created. But either way, it's trading your effort, energy, expertise, time for what the market says it's worth, what the person values it to have. This basic transaction. So there's a huge application from God as the creator owner to you and me because there's this great delegation that God has given us. We're made in his image. This is why Marx and those that follow him are so intent to get rid of the, the concept of private property. Because God is the creator owner of all things and we cannot submit to the creator. We won't. We'll be naturalists. We'll be materialists. We'll say there is no transcendent reality beyond our observation and reason. And that human rebellion gets foisted on the world as an economic philosophy. But the biblical worldview, just in, that's a contrast, an illustration of contrast, but the biblical worldview is that God actually owns it all. That's the argument for biblical stewardship of creation. He owns it all. So when you ask the question, should, should humans be fracking, should be using a fracking technology to, to get oil out of the ground that God put in there? That's a totally different conversation than the typical one that's being used against fracking. For example, it's God's stuff. Should we be using it? And that's where the, that's where the argument really needs to be, I've, I think, in a Christian worldview. My answer is yes. Why? Because the earth was created for man, not the other way around. That's Genesis chapters 1 and 2. God put man here to rule over the works of his hands. It's man's delegated responsibility. Now, God was not created, and God doesn't exist for man. That's, that's a God-man thing. We're under God. But the earth that he made, he put man over it. What's happened in the green thing is that we've taken earth or nature and we've made that divine so that man is under the earth, under the creation of, of, that God put him over. And that happens. Anytime you take God out of the equation where he belongs, you get the wrong answers in your mathematics. You get the wrong outcomes. I saw this cool picture proposing 
you know, Genesis 2-7, God formed man from the dust of the ground. But in Genesis 1-27, it says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female, created he them. God created man in his image. There's a debate in the language of whether man is God's image or whether man bears God's image. Don't you want to get into a theology class with me? <laughs> I'm the latter. They say God, man bears God's image. He's made in the image of God. And uh, th- this is real evident, for example, when Jesus says, when they ask him about paying taxes, and he says, um, bring me a coin whose image is on it. Caesar will render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. That coin has his image. We'll give it to him. What's the implication that nobody notices when they want to say, well, we've got a pair of taxes, render to Caesar. Well, that, whose image are you? And what image have you been made? So you give yourself to God, all of you. All that you are is his. That's what Jesus is saying. Because you're worried about money. <laughs> well, money has its place, but it's not life, and it's not you, and it's not your relationship with God. So I'm saying that there's a great delegation that God has made when he made man to bear his image. We are not defining authority as the determination of all decisions and outcomes. I'll let the speculative theologian do that. Authority is the right to make the decisions for all that falls under the authority structure. You've already said that. Well, there's a reason I'm saying it again. In the Garden of Eden, God is sovereign. He has the authority that he has to say, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Eat of all the other fruit, but don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what do the humans do? Do they demonstrate that God is not sovereign or that they are not going to submit to his authority? See, they make a choice because God gives them agency. He lets them have their choice. It's a delegation of the most fundamental principle in human government. And it is the capacity for you and me to make decisions over that which we are stewards of, that which has been entrusted to us. We're not God making the decisions that are his to make. We're God's image bearers making the decisions that he's delegated to us. What happened? God said not to eat. This was right. His right to say as the creator And by the way, there's nothing necessarily immoral in the knowledge of good and evil thing. Now, there's a theory about, there's all kinds of theories about the fruit. But it isn't necessarily that to eat this specific fruit is immoral. The way the knowledge of good and evil comes about is that man transgresses the right that God has to say, don't eat that one. It's the whole point of the exercise. Why did he make one? Because he's demonstrating that there's only one right way to approach the reality in which we live. And it's to recognize that God has the right to make the decisions as the owner of everything that he's made. And we have a responsibility delegated to us to conform our actions to the decision that he's made. And that is stewardship. That's what we mean by biblical stewardship. God said don't eat and he was, had the right to say it. Man ate, and God's sovereign authority was not canceled. God is sovereign, yet man fell. This is what theologians and apologists call the free will argument. It's inevitable. You you have to conclude that God delegated this responsibility to man, and then man abused it. Every time we delegate 
political responsibility to politicians by voting for them, and we send them to Hartford or to Washington, D.C., they now have decisions to make that have been delegated by the electorate. That's how this works. It's not we are bowing to them. It's that they are the servants of the body politic. That's the way this government was created. That's the whole Constitution, and everybody signed on, all 50 states. And they're supposed to make decisions in accord with the delegated responsibility they've been given. And that's why they tell you their platform. Well, this is what I'm for, so that you can see what kind of decisions I'm going to make. But what happens? What happens? They go, they go build mansions. They go build castles. God was not canceled in his sovereignty. His sovereignty was transgressed. It's important to see the distinction. That's the origin of the fall. That's what we're dealing with. As the man is saying, not your will, but my will be done. God did not sin or cause the sin. It's so important to get this. God isn't the author of sin. Even any level of commitment to Calvinism or Reformed theology, if you conclude that God is the author of sin or evil, you have found the reason to avoid that system of theology. He cannot be the author of that which is unrighteous. That's why the cross, the cross has to deal with the transgression of righteousness and sin, and Jesus has to pay for those sins on the cross to satisfy the just wrath of God. And the reason he does this is because he loved us, and the attributes of God are all working together. God is not the author of sin. And, you're, and, and I don't have an answer if you want to say, well, is he sovereign in the fact that sin exists? Yes, he's sovereign, and I don't know how uh, he pur- purposes to, to reveal what happens next. I know that it all turns out to his glory. Man used his delegated power of decision-making for his person to make the wrong decision. That's what happened. This example demonstrates what I'm calling the great delegation. The great delegation from God, who's sovereign and omnipotent, is that he gave us limited capability or ability or power. We can do things just not like he can do. We can be creative with his creative, with his creative universe, but we can't make matter. We can't make life. I say people, we make people. I don't really think we make people. I think God uses us to make people, and he makes the immaterial part of you, I contend. And I think he weaves that together. All human government is delegated government. If God is the sovereign and owner of all that exists, then all the authority structures are under his delegation. Now, when I say that and you say, this doesn't look like the world we live in, this this is not our home. And Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. You're saying that the God who is there isn't just ruling in the church. He's the sovereign over all. And the people in Hartford are supposed to be doing what he wants. The people in Washington are supposed to do what he The mayor, the town selectmen, they're supposed to order their decisions according with what God wants. The mother training her child 
the child being trained, they're all supposed to, within the delegated authority they have over whatever is theirs, they're supposed to order themselves after the Creator. I'm saying it's true more than, for more than 700, sorry, I'm going to do some Democrat numbers. More than 7 billion people on planet Earth are, are it's all true for all of us in every frame of our responsibility and existence. How can we do this? You're saying that the sovereign of the universe has something to say about what I do at, at work? There's an authority structure at work. I've got to fit within that authority structure. I can't just willy-nilly. That's what the, that's what the prison guards said at Auschwitz. I didn't cut any ice at Nuremberg for good reason. They're still hunting down the, the 17 and 18-year-olds that were guarding the, the Nazi death camps. They're still hunting them down and bringing them to justice. They were just kids, right? Well, their brains can't really, they're not really fully formed until they're 26. And I don't care. We were just following orders. Is it going to cut it? They would have killed us. It's not going to cut it. Why? Because they have agency, because they're responsible, because they know they're doing the wrong thing. We all, I'm just using this example. I got that from Charlie Clough to use that example. All human government is delegated government. And it begins at the individual level, individual self-government. That's where government starts, with what you do, with what's yours. And if you build it from the bottom up, from where you live up, that's how we're supposed to order things. See, the horror of our time, in my view, is sociological efforts to rearrange the whole thing. Oh, I've got a theory. Let's try this and see if we can't fix whatever the problems are. I'm with Peterson. Make your bed. Tend your garden. Take care of your business. And learn. Develop some wisdom so that then you can help others and you can make decisions and be promoted to do the virtuous thing at every level. Individual self-government is the problem. I believe that shows you why the collapse of our system. We're watching. We're supervising. We're going to go vote and all that. But we're watching the thing sink. We can't protect children from deviancy. We can't let them have a solid moral foundation because we're so interested in protecting the individual liberties of outliers, of people that are into deviancy. And it's a failure of individual self-government, and that's the disintegration of the culture. I've always said this, and I'm closed on this thought. The problem with our country and our government is not the elected officials. The way this government was set up, that is a reflection on the electorate. The problem is the electorate. Politics, they say, I think, is, was it Breitbart that said this, is downstream of culture. Look at the culture. Look at where individual responsibility is. Is the Rank-and-file Americans saying, as the founders, when the, the founding generation said, God, you have your way, your will be done. Are we saying that as a people at an individual level? We are not. Can you legislate that from the government? You cannot. And so the theme verse of God and government in the year 2022 in the United States is 1 Peter 1.13. Let's keep our hope fixed completely 
on the revelation of Jesus Christ that is coming. What do you do to, on, on Tuesday? You pray. You vote. You make yourself, even if you think, well, it won't matter, you know, in Connecticut, it matters. You and I have a responsibility to vote because it is the delegation that God has given us in the state, in the nation state we live in. We need to exercise that, and you need to go do it. And that's as get out the vote as I could possibly be. If you need a ride, we can get you a ride to the polling location. Notice I'm not putting my thumb on the scale and saying what your conscience should dictate that you vote, but to me it is very obvious. Nevertheless, the failure that we see is not the failure of the system, except that the system is operated by individuals and we're broken. Father, we thank you for the eternal life that is ours right now, despite the chaos and the destruction we see in every aspect of our nation. Whether it's the moral instruction of children, whether it's our health system, whether it's our national sovereignty at, sovereignty at the border, whether it's the execution of our system in legislation where they can't pass laws without um, indebting us and our future generations and to trillions and trillions of dollars. Father, in every way we look, every place we look, even in the public square where we speak, especially, we see deception and failure. But you are not failing, and so we trust you. Father, help us be reminded every day to fix our hope completely on the revelation of your Son that is coming. We ask in Jesus' name, we all said, amen. amen.